I have been trying to figure out how to start this platform for a little while, how to start out speaking to you. Just to begin, you know, I, I like to start usually with kind of a pithy story. I think of that as my signature platform style. Something from my own life, some funny little anecdote to draw you in. I have no funny anecdotes to share about the death of Trayvon Martin and the court case against George Zimmerman. The Zimmerman defense attorney opened his remarks with a knock-knock joke. Did anyone see that or read it? It was meant, I think, to acknowledge the impossibility of finding jurors who didn't know about the case. That's, I, I think that's the intention of the knock-knock joke, this case that, of course, everyone in America has been watching, and, of course, there are no jurors that don't know anything about it, you know. But all I could think was, a knock-knock joke? Really? When a boy is dead. Because the nation is not laughing. The nation is talking, screaming, fighting, disagreeing, wondering... And they have been since Trayvon Martin was killed in February. And certainly in this past week, as we have all reacted to the verdict which found George Zimmerman not guilty. For me, as I've interacted with that verdict and with, with the idea, which like so many things these days, I, I found out first on my phone, on Facebook, by reading other people's comments, you know, people saying, I'm so angry. <laughs> I thought, oh, Something's going on here. I was driving back from Indiana at the time, reading about the case and the verdict on my phone and trying to process what it means for me and what it means for America. And what I've realized is that my feelings, my experience, are about so much more than that particular verdict. They're about the context in which we receive that verdict in which we hear it, about the society and the system in which that verdict was handed down. And I know other folks have felt that way. Actually, the, the best articulation that I've found of it is from the journalist Charles Blow in an op-ed in the New York Times. You might have seen it, but I'll quote him here. He begins, in a way, the not guilty verdict in the trial of George Zimmerman for his killing of Trayvon Martin was more powerful than a guilty verdict could ever have been. It was the perfect wrenching coda to a story that illustrates just how utterly and completely our system of justice, both moral and legal, failed Martin and his family. And Charles Blow goes on, this is not to dispute the jury's finding. One can intellectually rationalize the decision as much as it is to howl at the moon to yearn for a brighter reality for the politics around dark bodies, to raise a voice and say this case is a rallying call, not a death dirge. The system began to fail Martin long before that night. Charles Blow goes on in that op-ed to talk about the ways that the system failed Martin from his very birth, the justice system and the education system, and the, the system of society in America, what that looks like, and what it says about young black men and how we value them or don't in this country. 
how they become what Charles Blow refers to as kind of overlooked, thrown away, seen as not important, their lives not valuable. And it goes maybe even deeper than the system failing these young men. One of the quotes that particularly struck me in this week as I read through my Facebook feed was from W.E.B. Du Bois. A system cannot fail, he wrote so many years ago. A system cannot fail those it was never meant to protect. I think back over the creation of the American system, all the things that 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 system means, which, yes, has had some tweaks since its founding, but which was originally created to protect white male landowners, straight white male landowners. All of our civil rights work has been to try to get the system to expand whom it protects, whom it honors, whom it counts as one of its own, one of our own. And for every step forward, we seem to take a step back. I think about the dismantling of some of the Voting Rights Act a few weeks ago by the Supreme Court. I think about the ways that we have tried to expand the system and the ways that it is cut back again. So for me, as I think about the verdict and what it means, I think about this whole systemic piece, about about what America looks like writ large. And then I think about how personal it is, too. For the systemic piece, I can educate myself and think and listen and read and reason and try to understand how it all works and the history of what happened. And for the personal piece... I mostly need to listen. And so I have been listening this past week as well, or reading, rather, voices of African Americans telling their context, their experience, the personal and historical stories and histories that influence how we hear this verdict and this story. President Obama actually addressed the, the case just a couple of days, that may have been actually just on Friday, he made a surprise appearance at a, um, at a press conference. And actually, it's really, I read the transcript rather than watching it, and the transcript starts with the reporters essentially sort of saying, oh, hello. oh hi, Mr. President. <laughs> he was not expected in that moment. And I loved what he said. He started by trying to explain to the nation or really explain to the white folks in the nation why it was that this verdict held so many deep feelings, brought up so many deep feelings. Here's what he said. I liked the way he talked about it. He said, but I did want to just talk a little bit about context and how people have responded to it and how people are feeling. You know, when Trayvon Martin was first shot, I said that this could have been my son. Another way of saying that is Trayvon Martin could have been me 35 years ago. And when you think about why, in the African-American community at least, there's a lot of pain around what happened here, I think it's important to recognize that the African-American community is looking at this issue through a set of experiences and a history that, that doesn't go away. 
Obama goes on to talk about that history, about what that context has been in America, about the African-Americans community. He, he puts it, the turn of phrase is, is just great. The African-American community is knowledgeable, he says about the way that the justice system has failed African-Americans. The African-American community is knowledgeable about the laws that are written with racist undertones. It's knowledgeable about personal prejudice and what that means in racial profiling. So he goes on to explain the context with which this experience, uh, this verdict is experienced by so many in America. And then we've seen that context and those stories told in other ways. There's all sorts of folks claiming, as Obama does, that, you know, I am Trayvon Martin. I could be Trayvon Martin. There's a wonderful picture of students at our neighbor uh, over Howard University. All the medical school students, I think the first year medical school students, first in their hoodies in a black and white photograph, sepia-toned and then in their white coats. And, and just the question, you know, what do we look like when in these photos? And others have come forward telling their stories. For me, though, it's the mothers. It's the mothers' stories that I have been reading most. This was a, an op-ed piece by... Khadija Costly White, an African-American mother of an African-American son. And I'm going to read a, a, lengthy, a lengthy piece from her because I think it's just so, um, so moving. She was asked to consider sort of how the verdict would be different if Trayvon had been white and to think about it from a systemic perspective, and then she ends up thinking about it very personally. If I could have had a white daughter instead of a black son, I think I'd worry less. I wouldn't read all the research that shows me the countless ways that the world could so easily strike down a being I'm still not brave enough to conceive. I'd read more novels and less news. I'd bake. I wouldn't be so afraid. I'd definitely be less angry. I want to warn you that there is some language in this that will be challenging, so I just encourage you to open your, your ears to that. I wouldn't spend so much time thinking about my life and wondering how to explain to my own child, the one I carried in my womb, why some white kid at the playground called him nigger or African monkey booty scratcher, or the teacher said his work was too good to be his, or some girl he liked said he was too dark or God help me what to do when a white man chases you in the rain. I wouldn't already be preparing myself for his premature death. If I could have a white daughter instead of a black son, my peace-loving, highly educated, radical, anti-war, liberal, social justice, peace and conflict studies minor, communitarian self, wouldn't be so carefully and genuinely considering the purchase of a gun. Just so, if ever necessary, I'd be able to stand my ground long enough to protect my beloved son. So I could see him graduate high school and get married and give me grandchildren. I think it would be easier to breathe. So I listen to these voices, these mothers' voices, and weep.
and struggle to discover what to do. Because I have a white daughter, and I bake, and I read novels, and that is not enough. Because what I want is a world where my white daughter and her black son cause their parents the same kind of worry and headaches. Where racism doesn't add a whole ugly, fearful layer onto the experience of parenting. So what do I do? That's what I've been thinking about. What's the appropriate response of white people? And I want to note that obviously when I say that, it does not include every person in this room. This is a community that holds many identities. Whiteness is my identity. It's the identity of the majority of folks in this community, but by no means all. And I want to be careful to acknowledge those of you who have already heard your identity spoken, who heard it in Obama's words or in the mother's words. And the truth, too, that although there may be different parts for us to play in this work, the work of repairing our society, ultimately it's ours to do together as one community. But still, there are, there are particular roles, I think, for white folks. And, and as a white person, those are the roles that I can explore. And so I've been thinking about that and trying to figure out what to do, reading, reading different commentaries on that. And I came across a great list called Ally Do's and Don'ts for, um, for white people. It was a little bit better than um, the bingo. Has anyone seen the bingo card for talking to white people about the George Zimmerman case? It's sort of a humorous and depressing look at um, you get a point for every time, you know, white folks say, well, you know. I don't know, maybe he shouldn't have been wearing a hoodie. Get a bingo point. So more constructively was this list of ally do's and don'ts. This is from a blog called The Angry Black Woman. And it's a great list. It's 10 do's and don'ts for white allies. I encourage you to take a look at the whole list. But I want to share with you a little bit of what I read, some of the ones that particularly, um, that particularly stood out to me. Number two, do read links and the books referenced in discussions. Even if the things being said make you uncomfortable, part of being a good ally is not looking for someone to provide a 101 class midstream. Do your own heavy lifting. Number four, do shut up and listen. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of listening to the people actually living X experience. There's nothing more obnoxious than someone, however well-intentioned, coming into the spaces of a marginalized group and insisting that they absolutely have the solution, even though they've never had X experience. Number six, do check your privilege. It's hard and often unpleasant, but it's really necessary. And you're going to get things wrong, because no one is perfect. But part of being an ally is being willing to hear that you're doing it wrong. The list goes on to include things like standing up to bigots and not derailing the conversation, being part of the conversation even if it's uncomfortable because as an ally, your comfort level isn't actually the most important thing. And I realize it may be a challenging list if you haven't engaged in some of this work before. It's challenging for liberals and for progressives, I think, just as much as anybody 
And in fact, one of the most challenging ideas is that, what number was it? Number, uh, number four, I think, shut up and listen. There's been a lot of conversation about that in the sort of blogosphere recently, whether white folks in this case should seriously just shut up and listen. And I think that there's a reality to that call, how important it is for me to hear the experience of folks who are living this experience, this experience to hear their stories, which isn't an experience that I can share or know. But I continue to feel it's important for those of us with privilege to educate ourselves, to speak up, to be part of the solution to use that privilege, even while listening and checking and finding the appropriate ways to talk, to use that privilege to change the system that gives it to us. And so I will do a little plug. I know Perry mentioned it during the announcements, but <clears throat> we have this great workshop coming up August 2nd through the 4th. It's the White Allies Workshop, and it's a follow-on, although you don't need to have gone to the first one, but we hosted a Jubilee Workshop. How many people have done a Jubilee Workshop here? Raise your hand. And so, folks, that was a whole weekend. It's a lot, right? Friday night and Saturday and Sunday that you spent there. Was it worth it? Say that more loudly, people. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My gosh, the one time... Perry Sedman is quiet, can I just say? <laughs> it is, it's a lot of time, but it's so important. And when I think about that time, you know, I did a Jubilee workshop a, a couple of years ago, and, and it's hard for me to take a weekend out, and then I think, you know, hmm, the system of racism in America, I think maybe I have a weekend for that, you know? Maybe I have a weekend. So I do encourage you to sign up for that. It is for folks who identify as white, specifically learning how to build skills to be better allies uh, to people of color and working against kind of both personal internal prejudice and also systems of oppression and racism. It'll be fabulous. The trainers are really great. Uh, so please consider doing that. Consider signing up. I think Susan Runner will see you about sign-ups, right? She's in the back. She's coordinating logistics. Thank you, Susan. So... So I think about all of that. I think about, you know, the voice that I might have as a person with privilege within this particular context. And, of course, there's other contexts where I don't have privilege, right? But within the, 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 the construct of race in America, I'm a privileged person. I think about how can I use that voice to change systems? And what are some of the systems that need to be changed anyway? There was actually a great, um, a great answer to that question, you know, because I think it's, I was, I was having uh, lunch the other day with a colleague who works in, at HRC actually, who works with the uh, LGBTQ rights, and talking about how it's been really easy to get people behind some of the marriage equality work and um, transgender non-discrimination work because there's work, you know, there's the legislation to pass, you know, you know exactly what it is that you need to do and sign up for and where you need to go and whom you need to lobby. And I think sometimes when we were talking about translating the ease of that kind of work and how, how you translate that to, to looking at the system of, of race and racism in America, which feels so huge, it feels so huge to me sometimes and how challenging it can be to figure out what it is that, that you're trying to fix right now, you know? What's the piece that we need to move on? So there was a great answer to that, you know? You ask a question out into the world, and then you get an email in your inbox telling you the answer. 
um, from Tequina, Boston, who works with Multicultural Witness with the Unitarian Universalist Association, who talks about how Trayvon Martin was a victim of Florida's bad laws, she wrote, a victim of a society that criminalizes dark skin, criminalizes poverty, and criminalizes youth. She talks about the systemic and institutional forces that resulted in Trayvon's senseless and unnecessary death at 17. And what she speaks to specifically are the school-to-prison pipeline. I think we're hearing more and more about that, the policing that happens in schools that feeds students and primarily young African-American men into the prison system. She talks about state judicial systems that convict and sentence youth as adults without the possibility of parole. She talks about gun laws and gun lobbies, and she talks about stand-your-ground laws. And then she calls folks to work. You know, many of those are related to the, to the sort of broader challenge of mass incarceration in America, the challenge of the prison system, and how many, uh, how many of our African-American young men end up within the prison system, often very early while in school, and then are challenged to get out of that system. And some of you, many of you actually went to the American Ethical Union Assembly, which focused on mass incarceration and the criminal justice system. And so you've already gotten some education about that and about some of what can happen in America. And it's, it's one of those places where I feel the conversation is changing. You know, you can just feel it. Michelle Alexander's excellent book, The New Jim Crow, came out um, last year, a couple of years ago, and people are talking about it. They're still talking about it. They're reading it there's starting to be more and more conversation about what we can do to change the fact that we're the, the country with one of the highest uh, criminalization, the highest number, percentage of people in prison in, um, in the world, actually. I was going to say in the developed world, but that's not true. <laughs> it's the world. It's just the world. So if you've got interest in working on that particular system, I invite you to come and talk with me and talk with each other and let's see what we can do here in D.C. and broader. President Obama's speech had some suggestions as well about what could be done to try to dismantle the system, this whole system that failed Trayvon Martin, right? He talked about educating uh, law enforcement at the state and local level on racial profiling, something that he introduced when he was a senator in Illinois, and that he talks about being met at first with resistance, but ultimately being really accepted and encouraged by folks in that state because it enabled them to do their job as law enforcement better, gaining the trust or some trust of the communities where they worked. He talked about dealing with stand-your-ground laws, and he talked about programs to support young African-American men. Uh, keeping them from getting into that school-to-prison pipeline. What do we do as a nation to tell them that they're valuable? How do we provide opportunities for them to know that and to live that? And then he ended this way. <clears throat> and then finally, I think it's going to be important for all of us to do some soul-searching. You know, there has been talk about should we convene a conversation on race, President Obama says, I haven't seen that to be particularly productive when politicians try to organize conversations. On the other hand, in families and churches and workplaces, he said, there's a possibility that people are a little bit more honest. And at least you ask yourself your own questions about, am I wringing as much bias out of myself as I can? 
Am I judging people as much as I can based on not the color of their skin, but the content of their character? That would, President Obama said, be an appropriate exercise in the wake of this tragedy. So what I wonder is if we can be the kind of church he's talking about, the kind of community, you know, that he means, where people are a little bit more honest, where we ask ourselves those hard questions about our society, about ourselves, about each other. And, and I think the answer is yes. You know, we've already been doing this work. We have a team that's focused on anti-racism and anti-oppression work. That's the team that brought the Jubilee Workshop back in the, in the early spring and that's bringing the White Allies Workshop in a couple of weeks and that we'll be looking for more opportunities to bring education and awareness to this community. And it's work that Wes has done for many years. Wes was integral in the civil rights movement but more and more, what's clear to me is that, is that this work is who we are. You know, teams aside and history aside and workshops aside and, and all of those individual pieces which are important, that at its heart, this is who we need to be. It's when I'm doing this work that I feel most as though I'm living what my mission should be in the world that this is the work we are supposed to be doing. And I'm not even sure who I mean by we, you know. Do I mean Wes? Or do I mean ethical culture? Or do I mean all liberal religious communities? Or maybe, do I just mean humanity, we, that this is the work we need to be doing? What I know is that the world calls for us to see each other as one. Not the same, having distinct identities and experiences and contexts, but as one. One human family, sometimes called one beloved community. That's a phrase from Martin Luther King Jr. that many others have gone on to talk about. The ethicist Sharon Welch says it this way, an appropriate symbol for the process of celebrating life, enduring limits, and resisting injustice is the beloved community. The beloved community names the matrix within which life is celebrated, love is worshipped, and partial victories over injustice lay the groundwork for further acts of criticism and courageous defiance. Whenever I do work on racism, I think about the first time that I really deeply considered race and racism from a systemic level. And I know I've talked about this before, so bear with me. It was in seminary, my first year in seminary, reading a little tiny book by Howard Thurman, the great theologian, called Jesus and the Disinherited, which really wasn't much about Jesus, but a lot about the disinherited. It was a book about, about race and racism in American society, really. And what I took away from that book, what resonated so deeply and so newly for me in that moment was the idea that my heart and my life is poisoned by racism just as much as the life of a person of color. That ultimately any system that divides us from each other, from our true nature as one humanity, that that system poisons who we are in ourselves. It draws us away from our true selves. Now that's not to say that my experience as a white person is the same as the person 
of color's experience. It's not, it's radically different. I'm afforded all kinds of privileges and things that I wouldn't be if I were a person of color. But, but, but my deep self, you know, is harmed too for participating in that system. Ethical culture is about being uniquely ourselves and also radically connected to each other. And so I just can't help but believe that our call as a movement is to be an antidote to that poison of racism, the poison of oppression in all of its forms, to reveal the true nature that each human holds, to affirm it and see it and create a world that allows it to flourish. This isn't work that we can forget about when the reaction to this particular court case has died down and the nation is turning its attention elsewhere, thanks to the many pundits that try to get our attention in all of those places. This is work we cannot forget for a minute. We can't forget for a minute that our attention has always been and will always be about creating and recreating the human family. So I leave you with words from theologian Thomas Merton that speak to me to the deeper truth underneath all of this. We are already one, but we imagine that we are not. And what we have to recover is our original unity. What we have to be is what we are.